couldn't help but thinking of a great Andy Mineo lyric while German was doing the announcements. It reminds me of German so much. I think Andy says, um, I'm not doing the most, but I'm doing a lot. That is German. Is it not? I'm not going to say he's doing the most, but he's doing a lot. A few years ago, I was in a conversation with German when he was a student, and I think we were at the Davenport Coffee Lounge, aka the Dav, in SIS. I was trying to teach him to understand and appreciate coffee, but I settled for him following Jesus closer. And I remember he was talking to me about a relationship, a friendship that he was in, and I thought it was very interesting that he wanted to talk about a relationship, but it wasn't a romantic relationship, it was a friendship. And then he said something, as he shared this story, he said, this friend of mine um, told me that they had put my name in their prayer journal and they were praying over me. And what I thought was a really cute story ended up being a very convicting moment for me because the next words out of German's mouth really shaped me probably in more ways than he realizes or that I can even communicate. He said this, he says, if you don't pray for me, you actually don't care for me. <laughs> right, because you and I, all of us, is part of the human condition that we talk about things that we care about the most. And we typically talk to or with those that we're closest to. And so German's thesis was this, is that if Blaine, if you, he wasn't really speaking to me, but secretly he was, because I hadn't been praying for him that week. He was saying, if you care about me, but you're not putting my name before the Father, then he was questioning my love for him, but also my closeness to the Father. One friendship is all he brought to the table, and it convicted me so much. Natalie has really gotten me into C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, and I'll kind of oversimplify it like this, is that C.S. Lewis makes this argument that friendship is probably the greatest of the four loves, but the most undervalued in culture and society. I was reading a research paper by a student named Zach, who goes to American University, Yep, I love reading students' work. I tell students all the time, if you're working on a project or a paper presentation, I would love to read it. No one takes me up on it. Of course, Zach did. Classic Zach. And so then I felt obliged to read it. And I'm going to do a really bad job of providing commentary on something that took him a very long time. But he shared this paper with, with us as a staff and some of the ideas, and it really got us thinking about friendship. And the topic or the title of his paper is A Diverse Approach to a Fact That Unites Us All, or does it, question mark, drama? What? I love it. Classic Zach. And basically, he does a survey and study of two different people groups from different countries and has them discuss and then quantitatively rank how they would view an ideal friendship and then an ideal family relationship. Well, as you can guess, out of the two groups, it happened to be Americans and Russians. Don't know what he's trying to say there. But... Um, he basically showed in his research that the family relationship was prioritized over the friend relationship in both cultures. But the biggest thing that I noticed as divergent was how low friendship ranked as an ideal or as a virtue within the American context. In other words, both the American and Russian culture ranked family above friends, but the disparity between friend and family for American was a lot larger than the disparity between family and friend for a Russian. Does that make sense? Are you following with me? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. He's been in Kyle for 11 years. Love that guy. It's a true story. He has like five degrees. I can't even pronounce them. What I think is really interesting 
about friendship is that I think so many of us, and this is not supported by the research, this is my take on the research, I think that so many of us in an American Western individualistic context, we settle in our friendships to avoid risk. The risk of vulnerability and the risk of missed expectations. C.S. Lewis, another shout out, he talks about sin in a very interesting way. He says, it's not that our desires are too strong, it's that we're far too easily pleased. It's almost an echoing of Ignatius of Loyola who says that our sins are really disordered attachments. Sins are things in our inner life, they are God given desires expressed in a way that wasn't designed by God in their expression. And I think this connects for me, this idea of sin and the church fathers and Ignatius and C.S. Lewis and friendship, in that I think that in my own life, I would describe an ideal friend lower than most might expect because my actual experience with friends is lower than most would actually expect. Like, I would rather settle for something poor than admit that there's a deficiency in my life. I remember walking across campus a few semesters ago with a student, and I talked about being in a friend gap. And they were like, so you mean you have no friends? And I was like, well, I use that language to be gentler to myself, but yes, that's what a friend gap is. I don't have any friends. And I realized through the help of a mentor, that it's really possible to talk about something so much that you unintentionally, accidentally deceive yourself into thinking that you're doing it. A friend of mine, Charles Lee, who is the CEO of this company called Ideation, he wrote this book called Good Idea, Now What? And in this book, he makes this claim that so many of us at a Fortune 500 company, in a church or ministry, in a friend group, that we will talk about something so much, we'll experience the psychological and emotional effects as if we had did it, but we've done nothing. And I think for me in some ways that I felt like my role on campus was to talk about the power of friendship, spiritual friendship, and vulnerability and community, but was I actually living it? I was selling it, but was I smoking it, right? I was saying this is what you should do. And then I realized that it's not very fun to be like the cruise ship director watching people take vacations and never take a vacation yourself. So here's the first idea tonight as we continue our series of being against the current countercultural living. And I had this thought earlier tonight, before we jump into our first point, that I wanted to share. And I was talking about it with Alexis, and then Alexis was like, you should talk about this tonight. And I think she was saying that because she didn't want to hear about it at that moment, because I was getting kind of preachy in the conversation. But I did take it as a permission to be able to say it tonight. I had this thought in the parking garage underneath Georgetown's campus as I was leaving my car. And the thought wasn't mine, but it, it was a thought that I feel like could be for somebody here, and it was this. It's that... Deconstruction of our faith is important, but without reconstruction of our faith is dangerous. Yes. In other words, many of us like to go to a fancy restaurant and have a deconstructed whatever, BLT, PB&J, like, oh, that's nice, it's deconstructed. Wow, I bet you they'd serve that at brunch. I wonder if Germans ever had that. You know, there's this idea of, oh, deconstruction, simplification. There's something deeply good or inherently great about that. But what I think, if I could gather every Christian on Instagram, the one thing that I would want to tell them is this, is that faith isn't like choosing a food. Faith is a dwelling place. 
And if you deconstruct your dwelling place and don't reconstruct it, you're simply homeless. Reconstruction of our faith is vital because deconstruction is often necessary. There's a lot of things wrong with the traditions that we are handed. There's a lot of problematic things that people intentionally and unintentionally handed us. But if we deconstruct without reconstructing, man, we have missed the idea. Because at the root of deconstruction is to get to the essence of something, not to demolish everything. So maybe you're here and you're wondering how long this faith journey is going to be for you. I would encourage you, in your zeal, in your passion for deconstruction, if you would apply that to reconstruction, or in the words of Dallas Will, a religious philosopher, to renovation of the heart, then you'll experience change. Okay, that was just my little sidebar with Alexis. So here's our first point tonight. We need to move beyond talking about vulnerability and actually begin to practice it. I think many of us in this room could talk about what we believe in, but I think it's true that all theology, someone once said, is worked out through our hands and our feet. In other words, it's not just having the right stated belief, but the right lived belief. And here's what I think is true of maybe the majority of us in here tonight. Some of us have so much adventure and delight ahead of us when we shift from talking about spiritual things to living as spiritual beings. Some of us feel like we're doing all we can and we haven't found joy or delight and the Christian life feels like duty and rules. And my hypothesis would be maybe you're talking a lot about faith and you're not practicing faith. It sounds like a hot take on your life is what I'm delivering, but instead it's very hopeful because we can't have the full experience of the goodness of God simply by talking about it, but by living it. That's why the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's this experiential, supernatural existence that we tap into. And we don't just say our beliefs, but we live our beliefs. And as we think through ways to live contrary to the culture around us, both the Christian culture around us that may be problematic and the secular culture around us, which may be distracting to us, I've come to realize that for myself and probably for you, that prayer is the most countercultural spiritual discipline or spiritual practice. That for our community, for you as American University and Georgetown University students, the most countercultural thing you could do in the Christian life is to pray. Because very few of us in this room would say, I have a robust prayer life. Some of us have a robust studying the Bible life, a robust community life, a robust social justice life, all good things, all flow from the kingdom. But do we have a robust prayer life? And here's why I think it's important for our community in this moment, in this season, for us specifically. Because prayer is action without predictable results. It's effort without earning or achieving. And you're here because you earned and achieved your way here. You're at the university that you're at because you have a resume that is impressive. Because you're smarter than the person that was next to you. You're wiser than your years. And you have access to more education and information than many that have come before you. But prayer is the most countercultural spiritual discipline because it, it involves us in activity, but it's not productivity. It involves us in acting, but the weight isn't on our shoulders. And I'm convinced that most of us in here are used to carrying a burden on our shoulders, so much so that when that burden is lifted, we don't feel like we're whole. 
that we're, we've been so busy achieving and producing and helping and serving and sometimes all within the house of God in a ministry context, that when that weight is lifted, we feel like we aren't whole. It's very easy to build our identity in things that don't truly matter in the long run. Someone put it like this, is that our heart is an idol-making factory. And I love that. I don't love it because it's nice. I love it because it's true. I can make an idol out of anything. I can make an idol about preaching performance and how I serve in ministry. I can turn anything seemingly good into being about me. And I don't think I'm the only one in the room that has that gift. And it's not really a gift, it's a curse, but that has that ability. I remember this summer I was preparing for my second back surgery at the ripe age of 30 as a handsome young man in Washington, D.C. I don't know what to do with that. And um, I'm just going to leave that be. And I remember sitting in my bed. I'd watched all the movies that I'd ever wanted to watch. I'd taken as much medicine as legally appropriate. I was frustrated. I was hopeless as a two wing wing one. I was outside of purpose, outside of serving, outside of being useful. And what I realized is that, oh my gosh, I can pray. I can pray from my bed. I cannot get up. I cannot. I have a cane. I'm looking pretty sketchy. I can't perform, but I can pray. And I could do things through prayer that I couldn't do through non-prayer activity. In other words, I realized that there were things in prayer, like moving the heart of God and changing the heart of students, that prayer was probably the only way that stuff was going to happen anyways. Fast forward a few months, I'm doing slightly better. I'm finishing up welcome weeks at American and at Georgetown. First time I've been able to do both, had to do both, been able to do both, depending on my mood when you ask me. And so I finished doing both, and I was feeling pretty good about myself. Like, you know, I got this. (laughs) <laughs> Take that, Satan. You thought one campus. Boom. Repping two for Jesus. Whoa. And then the Holy Spirit whispered to me, not audibly, but through an impression, through a thought, and said this. Blaine, what if the most valuable thing you offer to students is still your prayer life? Well, I was like, well, but I ordered a lot of pizzas. <laughs> I ran a contact table. I gave out 200 cups of cold brew. And he was like, but maybe the most important thing you could do is pray for students. And then I realized that, as German taught me, if I really cared, I would pray. And my mind started to shift from thinking that prayer happens before the work to prayer is the work. Prayer isn't what we do before we eat or when life group is ending. Prayer might be the most important thing that we do. Primarily because prayer represents a trust in Jesus that he can do what I cannot do. My pastor Mark says it like this, that prayer is the difference between my best and God's best. And as I see a broken world around me and problematic things on campus every day, I realize that my best doesn't go too far. That my talents and giftings, whatever they may be, fall short of transforming people's lives and stories. That I could spend 10 hours in a room with one person one-on-one, and I couldn't produce in that 10 hours what the Holy Spirit could produce in a moment. The controversial, difficult, radical part of praying and singing for Jesus to be at the center is are we willing to displace ourselves at the center? 
The idea of Jesus at the center is both comforting and challenging if you're doing it right. It's comforting in that you don't have to carry the weight, but it's challenging in that it's no longer all about you. It's no longer all about me. Matthew 21, 13 in the NASB says this, And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. This is Jesus speaking. He's calling back to the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. And I love that it's a house of prayer. I love that God spoke that in an old covenant context. And out of all the verses, all the prophets that Jesus could speak to, when there's problematic things happening in a place of worship, he refers back to this and highlights gatherings like this in places like this and saying, it's a house of prayer. I don't really like that, to be honest. I want it to be a house of mission, a house of activity, a house of productivity, a house of accomplishment, if I'm being really honest. But he's saying it's a house of prayer. And prayer is both the simplest discipline and sometimes the most difficult discipline. Because we're afraid to be honest with ourselves and with God where we're really at. We're afraid to pray prayers that seem bold or dangerous. Prayers that both expose ourselves and prayers that also cause us to risk or to hope again. I think sometimes it's not our previous failures that prevent us from growing deeper in our faith. It's our previous successes. I don't know about you, but I have 18 semesters behind me about in Chi Alpha, and I've got 18 more ahead of me in D.C. It is very difficult for me, honestly, sometimes to open up my heart again to another class of students. Because they always end up leaving. Shocker. What? It's true, Anna. Nobody told me that. <laughs> you and German should brunch and talk about it. <laughs> For me, I'm coming to terms with the idea that following Jesus inherently involves risk. Risk of reputation. Risk of being misunderstood. Risk of allowing my priorities to be redefined. It reminds me of the story in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, 46 through 50. Don't worry, I'm back in the NIV in the safe zone. It says this, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. So they were pretty, they communicated well. 48, he replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he points at his disciples and saying, These guys, these men are my mother. And my brothers, their singular mother, plural brothers, there's something going on there. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So sisters get a shout out too. To circle back to the NASB, the heading in the NASB over this passage of scripture says, changing in relationships. That there's a change status of relationships when you're following Jesus. And I'm not sure if we're willing to grapple with that. Because if I have a theological lens on the friendship research that I mentioned earlier, it's that we should not only view friendship higher, we should realize that what we call friends is probably should be our new spiritual family. And that's difficult for us because we've either had a bad family of origin or we've had an amazing family of origin. It makes everybody uncomfortable to have your family displaced. But Jesus isn't just calling you, he's calling us. God's work of redemption isn't singular, it's always plural. It's God and his people and his promises, not God and his person 
and a singular vision. Because even when he speaks to one individual, it's for the betterment of a group. My mentor Mike said it like this, that Jesus loves group projects. And then I once responded, but I don't. But I hate them. And he was like, well, Jesus still likes it. So that was encouraging. And I'm still here. Proverbs 17, 17 says this, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Proverbs is probably the book of the Bible. It is within the context of wisdom literature that is written to an audience most similar to who you are. Leaders, young, full of potential, at the start of the next chapter of their life. And the author of Proverbs, could be Solomon, maybe not, says a friend loves at all times. It's a great definition for a friend. But a brother is born for a time of adversity. In other words, he's not really mincing uh, words. He's saying that friends love you and care for you. And I, and I like that because when I'm in a friendship with somebody, I can assume the best even when they act the worst. When I'm not in a friendship with somebody, when they do the worst, I just want to do my worst to them. But he's saying a brother is born for a time of adversity. That's why Lewis can say in Four Loves that friendship can cut your sorrow in half and double your joy. And when he's talking about friendship, he's really talking about family. He's talking about these deep connections with high risk, high expectations, and high commitment. I saw this great meme on Facebook. There's not many left with all the politics, but it was this great meme. And it was like, uh, maybe it was from Babylon B because those guys are awesome. And it was like, um, God uh, cuts out all toxic relationships in life. 8.2 billion people no longer have God. And I thought it was really interesting because a lot of us view our friendships as disposable, but we don't necessarily view our family that way. And the text is asking us to reconsider how we would define friend and who we would define as family. Scriptures invite us to say, what do you think of friendship and who would you say is your family? And that's what Jesus was doing in Matthew 12. And then in Proverbs 18, 24, it says this, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. That's been part of my testimony. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And he's, it's, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus, of the Messiah. It's saying that there's friendships that can lead you astray, but there's a greater family that you're a part of, and that family will lead to your deliverance. We think of salvation individualistically. But first century readers were thinking of it communally or collectively. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We're going to take the next five minutes and do our table questions and table discussions. So I have two questions for you. Maybe you want to write them down. Maybe you have a great memory and don't need to. The first one is this. What's something that you talk about often but don't necessarily do or take action in? Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's a relationship. For me, it was like, oh, I talk about small groups. I talk about life groups. But am I in a small group? Am I in a life group? The second question is this. What pushes you to prayer and what prevents you from praying? So the first question is this. What's something that you talk about often but you don't necessarily do or take action in? Like I realized the other day, I talk about my favorite coffee shops often. I'm a coffee shop evangelist. But I haven't been to my favorite coffee shop in a very long time. That's very silly. I should go to my favorite coffee shop. You can come with me. 
La Colombe, of course. And then the second question is this, what pushes you to prayer and what prevents you from praying? So five minutes at your table, so those are two questions for discussion. I wanted to share with you the second thing that I learned. I first learned that you need my prayers more than my giftings. At least from the Holy Spirit's perspective, that's what he was speaking to me. But I also learned that I needed prayer at the center of my life as well. Brian Zahn, maybe it's in his book, Water to Wine, he makes a statement that prayers form our theologies. In other words, what we pray about or how we pray tends to inform how we view God outside of our prayer time. So when I pray prayers that are mostly supplication and lack thanksgiving, there's no wonder outside of my prayer time when I live a life centered on me. So not only do you need my prayers, but I needed prayer. I needed a deeper prayer life. Sometimes I needed prayers that were written by church fathers and mothers and to say them and to be with them in that moment. Sometimes I needed prayer that looked like contemplation and imagination. And sometimes I needed prayer that was spontaneous in my mind, in my heart, or even out loud. But what I realized is that my prayers or my lack of prayers said more about me than it said about God. Wow. That the way I was choosing to pray or to not pray said a lot about my character and maturity than it did about God and how I viewed him. A few semesters ago, uh, I took a year to be off campus. I, some people call it a sabbatical. I, I don't think I would agree. Um, I was spending a year raising funds so that I could commit to 18 more semesters, or at the time, 20 more semesters of Chi Alpha in the city. You probably have noticed it's an expensive place to live, and as German's going to notice this week, it's an expensive place to brunch. So I took a year off of campus, but I was doing the work of sharing the story of Chi Alpha and inviting alum, pastors, and friends to help send my family to continue to be able to invest long term. And during that year, I made some commitments to myself that I'm not sure I've ever shared, but I thought I'd share them tonight. I made a commitment that I would refuse to pray two things, or that there were two things that were off limits for prayer, even if students asked me specifically. Are you curious what they are? I hope you are. The first one is that I refused, because I was spending all this time talking about Chi Alpha, sharing the highlights of Chi Alpha, but I wasn't in Chi Alpha. I wasn't doing Chi Alpha. I missed it. Because it's fun for a moment to talk about the highlights, but it's so much more meaningful to experience the highs and lows of being in it and doing it. And I made these two commitments to myself, and I think I've kept them fairly well. One. Off limits for me in prayer, I would not pray over students' academic tests any longer. I decided I would no longer advocate for the Holy Spirit to help you cheat when you could have studied. I would no longer pray that you'd have favor when you could have had discipline. I would no longer pray, I would no longer pray for you to succeed in something you hadn't prepared for. Are you praying for our discipline and preparation? I am. Thank you. I have friends of mine who are in grad school, and they no longer text me to ask for prayer, and I kind of understand why, because they were like, hey, pray for us, and I was like, I'll pray that you remember all that you studied, and they were like, never mind, we're not coming to you for prayer anymore. <laughs> the second thing I decided that I wouldn't pray for is I wouldn't pray for students' busyness. 
Because busyness is that low-hanging fruit of life group time when you're confessing. It's kind of like the, I'm confessing, but my greatest weakness is my greatest strength. It's a little Michael Scott move, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, my, my greatest sin is I'm too busy doing the Lord's work. And I realized that I didn't want to pray about that. Because in my own life, praying about busyness didn't stop me from being busy. Realizing that busyness was sin and self-idolatry is what stopped me from being busy part of the time. As the staff can attest, I'm still struggling and recovering. So here's what we want to do in our response tonight as Natalie comes up. We want to create a moment where we're not just talking about vulnerability and prayer, but we're actually practicing it. And I think that vulnerability and friendship and prayer come together quite beautifully to form community. In other words, I feel like praying with someone is almost like the dialect or the accent of the language of friendship. And so what we want to do in our time of response, we don't want to sing a song. That's really good. We do that often. But what we want to do is create a moment, create an environment where we're praying for one another, where we're returning to the basics. We're deconstructing, but also reconstructing. And we're getting in pairs, brothers with brothers, sisters with sisters. Second Timothy talks about that. We can talk later. And we're praying because sometimes the most intimate thing we can do is share our greatest hopes or need with somebody around us and through prayer ask to borrow their strength and faith. I love young adult fiction, so of course I love John Green. In the book I just finished, Turtles All the Way Down, there's this great scene. And I love that there's altar music while I'm talking about John Green. This will never happen again. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is so confused. But John Green would be so happy. The protagonist is with the person she loves. And they're laying outside under the stars. And she says something to the effect that this is the most intimate moment I've experienced. Not because we're looking at each other's eyes, but because we're looking at the stars and we see them the same way. That's what prayer is. Prayer is looking at the reality of your circumstances and saying, but I think we view God the same way and that he might want to intervene. Intimacy isn't just looking longingly into somebody's eyes, hoping that something, a feeling or emotion rises up. It's saying, I think we see the world from the same perspective. Will we take a step together in the same direction? We're a community that talks about prayer, but I'm not sure we pray enough. My job is to shepherd a house of prayer, but I'm not sure I pray enough. I'm not sure anyone would say, yeah, prayer got that on lockdown. So what we want to do is find pairs. Maybe you've never prayed out loud. Maybe you're not even sure if you believe in Jesus. Let me tell you something really cool about prayer. Is that when you pray with motives that are good, you cannot lose. You cannot fail. There's no wrong prayer. There's no accidental blasphemy. That's the beautiful part of God revealing himself as father. I think of my own five-year-old son. If he's trying to learn a new skill, trying to ride a bike, trying to learn a new game, there's nothing that he can do where he would lose or I would consider it a failure. He's just practicing. He's just learning. He's just growing. But we don't like that because we like achieving. It's what got us here. The question before us is, do we want to sign up for a life of continual achievement or a life of meaning through trusting Jesus? 
So I'd love for you to stand as you're able. Find someone to pray with. I would ask you to respect my off-limit categories, not praying over academic tests, not praying over the sin of busyness that you could change with your own courage. Maybe you need to pray to be obedient. Maybe you need to pray on the theme of restored relationship. Maybe you're experiencing brokenness in your family of origin or in your friend group, and you want to pray about that. Maybe there's someone that you're close to that's far from God, and you want that to break your heart. So find someone to pray with. Pairs would be great. Brothers with brothers, sisters with sisters. If there's an odd number, I'm sure the staff will find you and help you not feel awkward. For the next five minutes, I want us to pray. Pray with each other. Share what your needs are. Steer away from busyness and academic tests. I don't want to pray for cheating. And let's steward this moment well.